Welcome back to Bibliography, a podcast for people who love a good to-be-read list. I'm David Kern here at Goldberry Books in Concord, North Carolina, and this is a conversation show about the way books make our lives richer. This week's guest is Michelle Nyhaus, an award-winning nature writer whose book Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction, was one of my favorite nonfiction books of last year. Although she began her working life as a biologist, Michelle has spent much of her career writing about conservation and global change, especially about those subjects in the American West. Her reporting has won several national honors, including two AAAS Kavli Science Journalism Awards, the Walter Sullivan Award for Excellence in Science Journalism, and inclusion in four Best American Anthologies. She's also a project editor at The Atlantic, where she edits features for the Planet section and a series called Life Up Close. Her writing has appeared in publications including National Geographic and the New York Times Magazine, and she's a contributing editor of High Country News, a, quote, scrappy institution that produces some of the finest journalism in the American West, end quote. That's from her website. She's also co-editor of The Science Writer's Handbook, Everything You Need to Know to Pitch, Publish, and Prosper in the Digital Age, and the author of The Science Writer's Essay Handbook, How to Craft Compelling True Stories in Any Medium. Beautiful Beasts, which, as I said, I loved, comes out in paperback later this month, and it's a fascinating look at the history of extinction, of the study of extinction, and the evolution of the environmentalism movement in the United States. And don't worry, even if you're a novice on the subject like I am, this book is downright exciting in the way it tells the stories of the women and men who studied and worked to preserve creatures like bison and rare frogs and birds, you know, the sort of creatures that make our world so exotic and wonderful. So if you're looking for something to read as spring arrives, this would be a great option. I recently chatted with Michelle about her own reading life and the books that have inspired her as as a parent, a scholar, and an individual. And as with every episode on the show, I think I came away with several titles to add to my uh, to-be-read stack, but that's the point. Uh, so here is my conversation with Michelle Nyhaus. Hope you enjoy. Well, Michelle Nyhaus, thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to talk to you. I uh, have been loving your new book. And so I read like three chapters when it was like, I've got to have a conversation with, with her about books she loves. So thank you for coming on. I'm so glad. Thank you for having me, David. We've been uh, hand-selling it. You know, that's the silly phrase that we use for <laughs> recommending books to people in the store. And so I've been recommending that a lot to people who who love nature books. So I do want to talk about nature and science books and then anything else you're interested in. But I start every conversation like this with the same question. So people who are regular listeners will know this is coming. But do you remember when you first fell in love with a book, like the first book that kind of captured your imagination or moved you in some way? Oh my gosh, what a You could have been question. four years old, maybe. <laughs> what a great question. Um, I mean, I do have childhood memories of being read to and mm-hmm. and of reading, you know, simple books for the first time. But as far as a specific story that really drew me in, um, I would say it's it was probably A Wrinkle in Time mm-hmm. by Madeline Lengel. Mm-hmm. Just the first book that made me want to step into its world and never come out. <laughs> so are you a fan of Langle's books in general? Have you read other books that she wrote? I did. As a kid, I think I read almost all of them. Uh, yeah. None of them had quite the same effect yeah. on me as that one, but nothing could, you know? Yeah. Um, That's pretty transporting. Wonderful writer. Yeah. And uh, I, I read the graphic novel to my child oh yeah rather than the original and i actually found the graphic novel to be so faithful to the original text that um and it and it cut out some of the wordiness that you know from <laughs> decades later looks a little bit dated um yeah. it was as wonderful an experience i felt to revisit it in that new form yeah i love that uh graphic novel and it's mm-hmm. it's definitely you said it takes it out but it's not it's still long yeah, like it's still no, thick it's, enough to, it's still to get the story. And, and yeah, and, and the characters come through and the magic of it comes through. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and the, you know, I don't feel that any of the richness or any of the ideas are lost. It's just things are um, said a little more efficiently or, or gotten across with an image rather mm-hmm. than a paragraph. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just thought it was an exemplary uh, translation in that way. Did you grow up reading? 
graphic novels and comic books and things like that? Or is this something new now that with your kid? It's new with my kid. I, uh, I wasn't a comic book fan mm. as a kid. I mean, I'm sure I read some comic books that that wasn't something I got yeah. into as a kid. And that was what was around, uh, when I was younger, that the, the renaissance of graphic novels and this new sort of sophistication of um of narratives in comic books and graphic novels is is something that i've yeah, gotten to get to gotten acquainted with as i've become a parent i really enjoyed it's true it has evolved a lot and like even turning novels into graphic novels is a relatively new thing yeah relatively new and um i mean it's I, there have been always been adaptations, True. but yeah. just the, I think the sophistication of them has really shot up. Did you grow up in a house with that was a big reading house? Not a huge reading house. Um, I, I mean, my parents were, were readers and, and read to me, mm-hmm. uh, read to me, which was a wonderful gift. Um, but I quickly, and then, and then they always, you know, facilitated my interest in reading, mm-hmm. made sure I had a library yeah. card, which I think is yeah. an important rite of passage for any yeah. young reader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's, really, it's of all one, ages. Of those, one of those first early acts of independence, I feel is mm. it's, it, it's such a, a passport into the world of reading, mm. but a lot of my, my reading was, was on my own, you know, I wasn't reading things that my my parents introduced me to after, at a, after a certain point. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I've always loved that, that search, that kind of, um, you know, scavenger hunt through literature where one book leads you to the next. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful journey. It's a, it sounds a bit like probably like how research is for a scientist or a science writer where you, your one thing takes you to the other. Um, very much so. Yeah. I didn't think of that, but, uh, yeah, I think finding new books to read is, has a lot of similarities to that where you you've come upon an unexpected connection, a, me, you yeah. know, a mention of one book and another book. And you think, Oh, maybe I'll go down this path and see if there's anything of interest there. Yeah. One question leads to another question. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So what role does reading fiction play in your life? I mean, you you have the, the book the, the new book in particular is you know it's a science book it's um you, you write nonfiction but what role does fiction play in your reading life mm. well fiction's always been really important to me I have never aside from a few private experiments I've never been a fiction <laughs> writer <laughs> um but I have found I enjoy fiction, of course, uh, yeah. and I have also I also find it useful to my work in nonfiction. Um, you know, so many so many of the stories that we tell to each other over and over again tell us mm. something about our relationship with mm. the rest of life. And so, I mean, I just find many fiction stories very um, just very revealing reflections of how we as humans see the world and how humans have seen the world in other times and Mm. places. So, I mean, for instance, I can, I can in, in beloved beasts, I um, write about um, Julian Huxley, who was the brother of Aldous Huxley, the author of brave new world. And, and I don't talk much about brave new world, but I found his, I found Julian Huxley's connection as a biologist and a conservationist to the author of brave new world to be very, resonant and interesting. And the fact Mm. that those two brothers had a lifelong conversation Mm. about where the world was going and should be going um, and disagreed over many things, but, but also agreed on many things. I I found that to be very interesting and revealing fiction. I was talking to a friend the other day and, and about books we were reading and I was noticing that I have a habit of reading old fiction and new nonfiction. Interesting. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, you know, I read a lot of classics, some new fiction um, that has been recommended by friends or that my, the, one of the book clubs I'm in is reading, but it, I often read uh, old fiction. And then for comfort, I read 
detective fiction. I've been okay. a yeah. huge fan of detective fiction since since I was a kid, since probably not too long after uh, A Wrinkle in Time, I started reading <laughs> like Agatha Nancy Christie's. Drew yeah. No, oh, okay. Nancy Drew for sure. And then Agatha Christie. And actually my 13-year-old and I are reading uh, Murder on the Orient Express oh, yeah. uh, to each other right now. And, and I thought, I wonder if this is just going to be an old fogey yeah uh experience but it holds up it's yeah. it's still really entertaining as a so puzzle you, yeah do you still turn to mystery fiction then to this day oh yeah okay yeah who, who are sure. some of your other favorites oh i'm a big golden age uh fan dorothy sayers um and is a is a longtime favorite i love uh, pd james i've returned to pd james um a lot recently, Ruth Rendell. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I like some Scandi noir, but yeah. I, I, yeah. um, I really do. Uh, it really is a, uh, not, a, I won't say a guilty pleasure because I don't feel guilty about it, but yeah. detective yeah. version, uh, detective fiction really is a comfort read in that I like stories. I like the puzzle of it and i like the fact that it is fiction yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't i don't really enjoy true crime actually yeah. because i I've, i feel like well uh, there's something about um finding it's entertainment painful. in the in the pain of others yeah, yeah. I, 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 not that i i mean i certainly think there's a lot of great nonfiction that has been written about crime but right but true crime is is pure entertainment i i'm not into but so i i like the fact that these are about crimes that didn't really happen and they can be very messy and the people involved can be extremely complex, but you know, that justice is going to be done in the end. And, mm. and, you know, that doesn't happen very often in real right. life. And I find that very reassuring. So if you had to choose one novel from each of those sort of, you know, Queens of crime fiction, uh, what would you choose? So one Christie, one PD James, one, Sayers, would you, could you do that? Oh, goodness. is that an impossible task? Maybe. I mean, Gaudy Night is a great one from oh. Sayers. Sayers yeah. You know, it's just it's it's got all her strengths in it. P.T. James. I mean, she's so interesting, and act, I mean, I love her de- detective fiction, but probably the book of hers that stayed with me the most is Children of Men, mm. which is more of a speculative science fiction book about a future in which uh, most people can no longer have children. Um, it was a great movie mm-hmm. many years back. Do you think um, your your love of that book has anything to do with your professional life? Children of Men? Yeah. Hmm. I think perhaps I related to it in the sense of, um, I, I mean, in, in Beloved Beasts, I write about Michael Soule, the, the founder of the field of conservation biology, who was actually my neighbor in Colorado for many years. And, mm. and when he talked about extinction, he would always say, what bothers me most about it is not the end of life, but the end of birth in the sense mm. of, you know, if no one is being born in a species, then there's, it's no longer evolving. Mm. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it no longer has a chance to adapt to its circumstances, um, to survive. And so I think, and I always found that very true. I was related to that very strongly. And I I think there's a lot of that tragedy and poignancy in children of men, because you realize how much of life would be missing, um, were there not new people coming into the world. I mean, whether or not one is a parent, or not, yeah. uh, there's there's a certain kind of joy and possibility and potential uh, that we all, I think, experience just um, by having young people in the world yeah. with us and and having young people come into our lives. So then you have so then you've done all this studying about extinction, and that probably took you on just an incredible like you probably felt like you were a detective. Because you've got all these, all of these, these people that you're profiling. That's like one part of the book where you're writing about, you know, these really important uh, scientists, conservationists, and and um, people who are writers themselves who are looking at the world. They've got a question, or there's some problem they're trying to solve. You know, the disappearance of bison or some frog or something like that. And so they're trying to understand what it is. And so then they become it's um, there's almost like detective work that they're doing. And then you have to then 
do some detective work on who these people are <laughs> and then make it all fit together. So when you're, when you were working on this book and some of the other writing projects that you've done too, but in particular, this book, do you think that there's anything that you got from your love of mystery fiction that maybe even <laughs> if it was unconscious, oh, I'm informed sure. your, your process? I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure that uh, becoming a, you could probably draw draw a pretty straight line from, you know, summer spent in the hammock reading Agatha Christie to my becoming a journalist. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's I love to common. work. Yeah. Like I love to work with words. And, and so there was that love of reading and language um, that came from many places, but, but I think that that sense of, you know, loving to to dive into a confusing mass of information and pull out something that makes sense. Mm. <laughs> um, that's part of the appeal of those stories for me. And it's certainly part of the appeal of journalism. Yeah, I do. I, I love research. I, and I especially love research into the past, which um, maybe is not so common among journalists, but I, I, loved this project because it gave me the chance that the project of writing beloved beast because it gave me a chance to delve into archives and and sort of in, indulge that that love of mine I'm, I'm not a professional historian by any means but I do just enjoy that that the the possibility in archives that even you know even very well cataloged well-thumbed archives there's always the chance that you might come across mm a letter or a quote or, or something that, yeah. that isn't well known. Yeah. Um, that's always very enticing to me. And I, I joke that I read possession by A.S. Byatt at an impressionable age. So I, I think that like sexy things are going to happen in archives, which, you know, they never have to me, but <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's Indiana Jones is going to show up or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also just the experience of, because beloved beast was about most of the characters and beloved beasts are no longer with us. So going to archives and getting to put my hands on things that they had written their private letters, that was the closest I was going to get to actually interviewing them, um, actually spending time with them. So I, was, I loved those moments. Was there a, a book or well, yeah, a book or work by one of these key figures that you wrote about that most surprised you at its quality and that you would say, okay, if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in nature or science writing, you have to read this book that maybe you didn't necessarily know about previously, or even if you knew about it, you, did, you didn't quite realize how good it was. Mm. Well, Aldo Leopold holds up as a writer uh, impressively, I would say. He's not a particularly showy writer, but he is a, a great thinker and a very stylish writer in a, in a, in his humble way. Um, mm. his style, I would say is deceptively simple. And mm. I, I had read Sand County Almanac in high school, read it several times, um, in my twenties, but I had not returned to it for a while. And it was really a, a treat to look, to return to it and realize, okay, this is a really special piece of writing, um, mm. written by someone who was not, did not think of themselves, I think, as a writer. Hmm. Uh, he was, you know, he had, he had many other hats that he wore. He loved yeah. writing and, and I think was known, you know, among his colleagues as, as the wordsmith, but, but it was not something he necessarily aspired to do or trained to do. So, yeah. And, and, and he just was so wise about, at a time when many conservationists were still thinking, okay, conservation is just about protecting other species from people. You know, it's just mm -hmm. about drawing lines and boundaries. I think Leopold was perceptive in saying, yes, that's necessary at times, but that's just the beginning. We need to find a way to support people in living alongside other species. We need to we need to recognize that we are part of an ecosystem um, and in a sense, you know, harken back to an older form of conservation, the kind of conservation that's been going on since the beginning of human history at a small yeah. scale. And so, and I think that is still so relevant and needs to be heard by much of the conservation movement. So I, I he articulated it very well in the 30s and 40s when he was writing and, and it's, you know, his points still stand today.
if you were, if we were trying to create like a, I don't know, a Mount Rushmore of, <laughs> of books on conservation, on the conservation movement, well, not on the movement, but by conservationists, mm-hmm. what would you say we, would be the four? Like, let's say Sand County Almanac makes that list. So what are the other three? Unless you don't think it should make the list <laughs> after that. No, I think it should make the list. Um, gosh, it's hard because I feel like I'm going to tell you titles and then I'm going to later, I'm going to feel like, oh, I regret it, yeah. a really important <laughs> one. But I'll give it a shot with the caveat that uh, I may regret there this are more. later. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that there are more. I mean, yeah. you know, it's I mean, maybe it's, like a starting can, place. Yeah. Canons are always difficult because, right. you know, they, they should be. Uh, should be subject to change and they when you name things they always have such a it always yeah has such a weighty sense of these are the books yeah these are the only books you should read (laughs) well let's let's put it like this Um, someone's read your book and now wants to dig deeper into like some essential essential works yeah for sure yes i would put sand county county almanac on there and i would put silent spring on there it's a beautiful piece of writing and I think still deserves to be read. And Silent Spring is the Rachel Carson book, right? Yes, I yeah. should say. Silent Spring is um, Rachel Carson's book about the the dangers of DDT, which, um, you know, was a sensation when it came out. It's still an iconic book and Beloved Beast gave me the chance to revisit it. And I, I would argue that the iconic status is still well-deserved. Mm. Um, I would, you know, I would say, I would put Charles Darwin's Origin of Species on there um, just because it it changed, though it wasn't specifically about conservation um, and really predated the modern conservation movement as we yeah. know it. Yeah. I think it it changed how North Americans and Europeans saw themselves in relationship to the rest of life. I mean, before Mm. Darwin, people thought that species were divinely created, um, that they never changed. They never went away. Um, Mm. And they also believed that humans were separate and special. And I think uh, Darwin started to make people realize that they were both more powerful in that they could make other species go extinct Mm. Their actions could make other species go extinct and, and less powerful in the sense that they weren't so special, <laughs> you know, that, that humans were related to the rest of life. And I think that, that those two realizations have rever- reverberated through the conservation movement. Mm. It seems like all three of these books so far that you've listed in a way are, are books that have helped reshape almost like worldviews, like the way we think about the world around us and our and our role in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they had, they like cause us to ask different questions, I guess, referring to what I said earlier. Yeah. Yeah. They cause us to ask different questions about the world around us and yeah, to see the world in different ways. I mean, Rachel Carson introduced the world to the invisible threat of, and that the invisible threat and the global threat of pollution um, before Rachel Carson, I think conservationists, and this is speaking very broadly, but conservationists had thought of conservation as a as an effort to prevent people from shooting too many animals, <laughs> and right. then later uh, an effort to protect their habitat, you know, in very direct ways. And Rachel Carson said, "Well, yes, all that's good, but there are these threats hmm. that go beyond, you know, that go beyond just." how much acreage, how much undisturbed acreage does a species have? Um, you know, we, there are threats to species that we can't even see and that can cross boundaries that can move around the world in air and water. And we need to be paying attention to that too. So yeah, mm. changing, radically changing the way in which people saw their world uh, and the world around them. Mm. And, uh, and although Leopold, I would say in the same way in, 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 prodding people to think of themselves as a member of what he called a land community. And we might today call an ecosystem saying, you know, sort of picking up from Darwin and saying, yeah, we're not that special. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We should aspire to be 
plain members and citizens of the assemblage of mm. life. So you've got Sand County, Almanac by Leopold, <laughs> Silent Spring by Carson, and Origin of Species by Darwin. Can you come up with a fourth one? Oh my gosh, it's so hard to choose. I mean, there are so <laughs> many that I feel like say really important things. Is there about one that the conservation has, movement like meant but, the most to you? Like that immediately comes to mind is like you would you personally. It's like part of your story, like part of helping you become who you are, and and shaping your work and that you would want to read it again and again. Mm -hmm. I always come back to Leopold in that way, because I feel like he's so, um, he's just like a, a balancing influence, a tonic for me, you know, uh, in, in, in that, you know, reminding me of what I feel is most important in conservation, which is, which is preserving relationships, preserving relationships Mm. among species and, between species and their habitat and then between other species and humans, which I feel like is one that gets forgotten the most. Mm. But I mean, I can name a few that I felt, I feel were formative in my thinking about conservation uh, that are not so much by conservationists themselves. I mean, I would say Conservation Refugees by Mark Dowie um, really brought, is not a perfect book, but, but brought the human cost of, especially of uh, colonialist and international conservation efforts, which were very well-meaning, but had a lot of, uh, had a lot of really tragic, have had and continue to have in some places really tragic side effects for, not side effects is the wrong way to talk about it, but really tragic consequences for for the people who were living in these areas and were displaced um, by these, as I said, well-meaning, but but not well thought out um, conservation measures. I would say William, this is not a book, but William Cronin's The Trouble with Wilderness, his um, landmark article about the concept of wilderness and how it is uh, in some ways a, a cultural artifact. And that has always reminds me to separate our ideas about wilderness from the capital W legal definition of wilderness that mm. continues to be very useful to the conservation movement. This uh, to separate that legal tool from the, I think, mostly very inaccurate idea that that uh, there exists anywhere a, a blank slate, so to speak. You know, a place that has never been visited by humans. There, there are certainly places that are places where other species dominate, but there are very few places that have no human history whatsoever. Hmm. And that was the trouble with wilderness. Yeah. The trouble with wilderness is an article. So you mentioned earlier that you read a lot of older fiction mm-hmm. and newer nonfiction. Um, two questions related to that one on each of those topics. So let's start with the newer nonfiction. Is there mm-hmm. a book, a recent nonfiction work that most surprised you? Mm, great question. Are you asking specifically for, um, about environmental, no, not necessarily. Books. Um, if you, if there was something that was you know in this you know in, that's in that, then that's great. But it, it could be it could be anything. It's something that just you know knocked your socks off, as my grandpa would say. <laughs> <laughs> Cast by by mm-hmm. Isabel Wilkerson. Mm-hmm. I think everybody should read that book. It it is. I felt like it was a pair of goggles, so to speak. That. Mm. I had not looked through and mm. it changed the way I see the world and the way we were talking about, yeah. you know, just thinking of race in the United States as a caste system mm. uh, was a very powerful idea to me. And mm. I, um, yeah, I think that book was an enormous service to us all. Mm. Let's talk about, let's talk about the fiction then. Cause mm-hmm. you, said you like to read mostly older fiction. So what are some of the, the novels that have, you've, have stayed with you throughout your life? Um, the novels that you, that you turn to when you're, you know, frustrated, sad, happy, <laughs> you know, but the ones that you just find yourself like thinking about the most. Sure. Oh gosh. Um, Middlemarch has to be up mm. there. I hear that um, one a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a great classic. Very much so. 
What, what do you love about that book? Like, why does that stick with you? Oh. I'm not asking, you know, I don't need like a three-point essay, but just <laughs> some of the things that like, when you think about that book, what do you think of? There's the journey of the characters, the, and the, such the, oh gosh, it's hard to sum up, but. No, I know it's impossible. Just it's the, not a fair question. The, yeah. I mean, the, the unbelievable persuasiveness of their internal lives. Mm. Yeah. I like that. And, the unbelievable yeah. persuasiveness of their internal <laughs> lives. I mean, it's all, it, yeah, fiction is the art of persuasion in many ways. And, mm. uh, you know, the dream never breaks in Middle March. Um, mm. Jane Austen, I mean, I can always love me some Jane Austen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, what's your your favorite of the books? But really, what I really, what I really want to know is what's, who's your favorite character in Jane Austen's canon? Oh, gosh. Because that's almost even less fair of a question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it's very, very unfair. <laughs> um, I mean, we all like to see ourselves in most of those, I think most of the protagonists. Yeah. Of, uh, I probably had the most fun with Mr. Darcy over the course of my right. life, you know, his in his various incarnations from yeah. Colin, Colin Firth to, uh, yeah. to then Colin Firth in... Bridget Jones's diary <laughs> yeah, true, <laughs> and his true. Christmas yeah. sweaters. I mean, yeah. and yeah, I just, the, the sort of cultural phenomenon around Mr. Darcy is really very it's interesting isn't it? and enduring. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, just the silliness of, you know, this kind of emotionally clogged man as being our ideal romantic hero. <laughs> <laughs> People in the late 1900s also. <laughs> Late, late yeah. 1800s, rather, also right. saying the same thing. <laughs> and and speaking of P.D. James, I mean, Death Comes to Pemberley, uh, mm. which was her uh, her kind of, you know, high- I actually haven't read that one. It's fun. It's, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of, you know, a fan fiction of, um, of Pride and Prejudice. And it continues, uh, it continues their story. And- um, and, and it, it's also a murder mystery death comes, you know, there's a murder mm, at Pemberley yeah, yeah. and, um, and the, the Darcy's have to participate in solving it. And, um, I found it very shocking that, that Elizabeth calls Mr. Darcy Fitzwilliam, like, yeah. you know, of course they, she refers to him by his first name, but it's still somehow inappropriate, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's fun because you get to, you know, you get to sort of imagine, Oh, okay. This turned into a real marriage. And yeah. um, with how old were you when you came and, to Jane Austen? Oh, teenager. Yeah. I came to it through, um, how oh, just probably through being like a merchant ivory movie nerd oh, yeah. and kind of yeah. liking costume dramas and all that stuff. And so, and then, then reading the books and realizing, Oh, these are, these are great fun as well. What do you, so, do you think you love them in the same way that you did then? Or is it changed? Oh, it's changed for sure. Uh, I, I'm much more cynical <laughs> about, uh, <laughs> about the romances. And, yeah. and I mean, I think it just, it's it, probably they, how the books want you to read them, honestly. Yeah. Well, that's how Jane Austen saw them really yeah. as satires. And I think yeah. I didn't get the, I didn't get the satire when I was a young teenager. I just thought, Oh, swoon, you know, Yeah. but um, <laughs> well, and the writing is good and the characters are wonderful. Yeah, and, so. they are. and, um, and now, you know, I think I get the, the satirical part of it and enjoy the satirical part of it. You know, Jane Austen was so clever yeah. and witty. So which one have you read the most? The most times, probably Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, yeah. Sense and Sensibility. The nice, a nice long one. Yeah. Yep. So you you mentioned Austin. You mentioned Middlemarch. Anything else that that has kind of been, you know, stalwarts in your life? Oh gosh, I feel like I'm naming so many Brits. I don't mean to be such a um, so. Hey, there's no accounting for the things that have stuck that stick right. with us, right? But yeah, the things I encountered and the things that stuck with me are, um, I mean, I would say also the Brontes. Yeah, and um, you know, Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre made a huge impression on me. I I joke. <laughs> I still actually recall the moment when I got to the afterward, and it says, "Reader, I married him," and I'm probably like the only person on earth who was shocked <laughs> by this news <laughs> because the romance the as, as a teenager just seemed their romance just seemed impossible to me, yeah. you know, and now of course I think, Oh, they were, you know, of course they were completely compatible, but yeah. Um, anyway. And I remember thinking, Mr. Rochester, you've got to be joking. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, are there any great novels 
that touch on or explore, you know, the ideas of conservation, the things that you've spent so much time studying professionally, um, that, that are done, done through fiction that, that, that you have returned to or rec- would recommend? You know, it's funny. I would say that the most perceptive fiction about conservation is science fiction, speculative fiction. Yeah. I mean, starting with Brave New World. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in a way. I, I guess mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think it's funny. I, I would, I mean, I would love recommendations of, of historical fiction or of, of, you know, present day fiction that, that look at conservation themes. Um, I mean, I can think of a lot that deal with people's relationship with property and land yeah. and landscape, but conservation yeah. in particular, like the, you know, the sustainability of the way we live, the way we're changing our climate. I, I feel like that is the realm for better or worse. It's the realm of science fiction. Um, hmm. I mean, my, my friend, Paolo Bacigalupi, who's a well-known science fiction writer. Um, he and I uh, lived in the same town in Colorado for a long time and, and we're young writers together. And I used to always joke that he took my journalism and, and then, extrapolated it into absolutely the worst case scenario. <laughs> and there was a wonderful the stuff of fiction. Yeah. And it became the stuff of fiction. And, and I, I would joke that I was just jealous of that ability because you would in journalism, you can only say what's happening. And mm. then, you know, with in a heavily caveated way, you can say what, what might happen, but in speculative fiction and science fiction, you have the ability to say, okay, here's what it would be like if this actually happened. Oh my God. Yeah. What a nightmare. Or, you know, I think Grist just published a really interesting series of, um, of more uh, utopian, not utopian, but, but more positive or optimistic uh, climate fiction. And I think I, there's, Hmm. there's such a tradition of dystopian fiction in climate in, in science fiction that I think, uh, most of the conservation oriented or climate oriented fiction has been along those lines, but, you know, science fiction can also show us how to solve problems, um, mm. you know, not just dread them. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would love to see more of that. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, I am much more of a fan of just as a reader, a fan of historical fiction uh, than I am of, of science fiction, but I, I am a, an ally of it <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I see its power yeah. um, to talk about conservation. What would, so let's talk about historical fiction. Like it, what would historical fiction have to, to do to be able to accomplish in for the conservation movement, for lack of a better phrase, what science fiction manages to do because it's able to just kind of say, what if where historical fiction is like, is there a way that the kind of the historical fiction, which is a genre, a genre you love Mm-hmm. could accomplish some of what science fiction does because of its sort of the opportunity that it gives to imagine the world in a, in a sort of what if scenario could, could historical fiction actually ever do anything like that? And if so, how, what would it have to do? I would love to see it do so. Um, I cannot think of a good, and I'm not saying it's out there, but I can't think of a good example that where historical fiction really takes on uh conservation directly. I mean, there are some great novels about, uh, for instance, Arctic exploration that really make clear. I mean, I'm thinking of, for instance, the North Water, which makes clear just the sort of gruesome level of exploitation of humans and other species that happened during the era of Arctic exploration. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot that historical fiction can do in terms of demolishing myths about you know, Western expansion in North America, you know, the, the romance, I mean, certainly historical fiction has done a lot of damage in, in romanticizing stories of conquest, but I mm-hmm. think there's a lot, yeah. it has a lot of power to um, demolish that as well. And we're seeing more and more of that. I think that's really, that's an opportunity that has yet to be fully explored. Yeah. And then, then there are also some wonderful novels about science and scientists and their love of other species. And I think those are, those are wonderful too. So 
on your uh, list of accomplishments is that you are the co-editor of the Science Writer's Handbook, Everything You Need to Know to Pitch, Publish, and Prosper in the Digital Age. And then you also are the author of the Science Writer's Essay Handbook, How to Craft Compelling True Stories in Any Medium. Now, people who are listening to this episode already heard me say those things, but I bring that up now because before I let you go, I'd love to know, so far, I've mostly had fiction writers and history writers on the show, but I love science writing. I love nature writing, partly because it's an area that I have a lot of, I don't know, gaps in. I didn't, mm-hmm. I always thought I was bad at science and at the sciences because I was, do. because I was bad at, I was bad at math and couldn't do physics. And so it kind of just made me think about science in a different way. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's an area that I love to read about because it's feels foreign in a way that's exciting. Mm-hmm. But as someone who has co-edited the science writer's handbook and written the science writer's essay handbook, I'd love to know what you would like for people who are reading science books and books of nature to know, I was going to say to know about science books, but if you were giving people, you've given people advice on how to write those books and to do science writing, but what advice would you give to people who are reading science books um, like, I don't necessarily mean strategies for reading better, but what, as someone who's written a, a book of science and worked mm-hmm. with science writers, are there things that bother you about what the average reader does when they're reading science books? Someone like me, who is uh, not a scientist and loves to learn the stuff, but probably maybe reads it in the wrong way. I don't just wonder if there's mm, anything that's ever, you've ever come across like that. I don't know if there's, there's a, a wrong way of reading science, but I will say that I think a lot of people feel like you. I, there have been times in my life when I felt like you where I felt like, oh, science is not something I'm good at or it's, mm-hmm. it's scary or alienating to me in some way. And I think that is occasionally perpetrated by scientists. <laughs> um, much as I love scientists, they uh, there are scientists who enjoy um, the feeling that they're doing something that's not accessible, that's esoteric. Mm. And I would encourage all readers to believe that science is for everyone. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm a really firm believer in, in the idea that science is open to everyone knowing, you know, we may not all want to practice science, but the wonder yeah. of science, the, um, the insights that science has to offer, those should be accessible and available to everyone. And we shouldn't be trying to make them um, seem special or, or, you know, too complicated for people to understand, to understand. And, and I, I mean, that's something that I really aspire to in my work is to write for people who are curious and intelligent, um, but are not specialists, you know, maybe specialists in other things, maybe accomplished art historians, uh, or, you know, incredible craftspeople, but they don't have a background in science, but they're curious about it. And I, I try to communicate what I see as valuable about science to people who I think deserve to know it. Mm. So I would just say push back. If you feel scared by science, (laughs) please push back against that because it's, um, it's a, it's something that is, I I feel like is, is sometimes it's science is made deliberately exclusionary and it shouldn't Mm. be. One of the things that I love about your book, and it doesn't surprise me that you like to read a lot of classic fiction is that is the way you tell the stories of these people and of Mm. the movement itself and the narrative that the individual narratives, as well as the larger narrative. And those are things that make it, I, a lot of great books have those kind of things to hold on to as you're going through it. So when something feels like, I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna have to do some more research on that to understand it, or I'm gonna have to write that down, or I'm honestly not sure what she's talking about right now. (laughs) There's still that larger narrative that you threaded through and then the narratives of these individual fascinating people, which, which are like an entryway into it. So I really appreciate that about your book. There's not a question there. It's just me saying, thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, 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 I mean, just, I'll say one more thing. It brings up one more thing that I feel is important about science writing and, 
And that is the, the translation of the actual science into intelligible <laughs> language is really only the beginning of good science writing. And that a big part of our job is putting it in, putting science into the context into, I mean, in my case, into historical context, but also, you know, political, economic, social context, those things are really important. And um, so for readers looking for good science writing, I would, I would recommend that they look for authors who are trying to do that. Mm. Um, Because I feel like those are, for me, those are the most, most rewarding reads about science. and, Mm. And that's what I tried to do in Beloved Beasts as well. Okay, last question for you before, before I let you go. Mm-hmm. Let's imagine that you are headed out for an exploration and you've got a you've got a backpack or whatever, a mule or a truck or whatever, and you have enough room for four books. Oh my and gosh. Size doesn't matter. I knew matter. it was gonna like, be something like this. Size okay. I know it's a, it's it's a really unfair of me. Science, mm-hmm. science, I mean um size size, size does not <laughs> matter. It's just a weird hypothetical situation. It's kind of one of those desert island type things, deserted island scenarios. You're going to be gone for a year. And so you got to take four books with you to keep you company during that year of exploration. Um, And I'm not, no details on where you're going. None of that matters. So you're just choosing four books that you know you're going to want to spend time with. Okay. So they can be as heavy as I like. Yeah. In this made up science fiction scenario, (laughs) there's no, uh, no size size limits you know it doesn't matter if you have to carry them or whatever okay well the complete stories of sherlock holmes for okay. sure for comfort <laughs> get me through bad moments yeah uh i take a complete set of uh jorge luis borges okay i think just because those stories are so rich and would reward multiple multiple readings they keep giving back um what else would I take with me? Shakespeare, full, the, full set of Shakespeare. The whole <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna really. What, you said it. You said it could be as I, heavy I, as I know, I did. I did. <laughs> what? Uh, what's your favorite Shakespeare play? Oh, my favorite to watch. Yeah. Watch um, or read or to watch Twelfth Night because it's so funny. Yeah. Um, to read, probably Hamlet. I mean, I know that's the classic it's legendary for a reason i know it's yeah it's legendary for a reason just you know the language is just so beautiful we could talk about shakespeare and conservation (laughs) there's a lot to say about shakespeare and conservation actually (laughs) yeah i took a i remember studying a course with back way back in college like studying um i guess as you like it probably and yeah well yeah right the forest of arden and the the yeah the um the escape into the uh, Arcadian wilderness. That's all there. And as you like it in the Tempest in, in a way. So, um, so we've got Shakespeare. Yeah, we've got Cannon, Shakespeare. So it's like Borges a huge, heavy backpack. Yeah. Um, gosh, I feel like that th- those three would probably get me through a year. <laughs> they probably would. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I would probably, gosh, do I have company on this trip? Am I just by myself? Is that going to determine the, no, I was just thinking I would take a read aloud book. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. Well, what would you choose? Um, I just was thinking about how much I've enjoyed reading with my kid and yeah. how um, I would just take one of these brilliant YA novels that I've read so many of lately. And uh, I mean, my kid just got old enough for John Green and so read yeah. the fault in our stars and then said, this was so good. I want to read it with you. And we read it together and oh, that's great. flood tears flooded from both. Of yeah. us, you know? yeah. <laughs> um, so I would take a book like that, maybe not that one, but I would yeah. take a book that I felt like could be shared Yeah. Um, with whoever I was with. Yeah. That's um, my kids. My oldest has just turned 10, but it's so fun rediscovering or discovering new things with them. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, 10 year old, still some limitations on the things that we're reading. Um, especially he's reading by himself, but just every, you know, there's so many, so many great children's books that, mm-hmm. that I'm almost having as much fun just rediscovering or discovering children's books as I am, you know, new crime fiction, which I read a lot of. Yeah. Um, it's so fun. Oh, it's delightful. Isn't it? I mean, I feel like it's fun to sort of float the classics 
um, with my yeah. kid and, and see what takes and what doesn't, you know, yeah. no on Lloyd Alexander. Yes. On Ursula Le Guin. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lloyd Alexander did not fly. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately still love that guy. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, since Harry Potter, there's just been this explosion of wonderful YA yeah. and, um, and, you know, not just fantasy, but just, yeah. I think, wonderful YA with, you know, characters who are just so much more diverse than the characters we read about and mm -hmm. so much more complex and interesting. And yeah, I, I have loved discovering the new stuff um, and using that as a jumping off point for discussion about what's going on in the world. And yeah. it's those, I think it, that kind of literature is such a great way of bridging the age gap between <laughs> parents yeah. and kids, you know, yeah. and we have common experiences to, to refer to and talk about. Yeah. It's like just opening. It, it's about the questions you ask. I feel like again, like that idea comes up again. It helps you like ask the same questions together. Mm -hmm. They can lead to conversations. And even if, you know, like my 10 year old is not going to come to a lot of truly profound conclusions. Um, not yet, but the idea that we can ask some of the same questions and discuss them and let the stories kind of, mean something now and then later on they're going to mean something else like when you read Jane Austen as a high schooler and <laughs> mean something different later uh, but that's that's the beautiful thing about books so yeah it really is that you can step into other very different lives together and then say mm. well, what would you do in this situation well, I don't know I, you know what would you do is it different than what I do and why and yeah you know, what do you think of this choice that someone made yeah. it's um fiction is a fiction enables that in a way that I think you wouldn't be able to do just talking about your own lives. You know, mm. it, it, it provides a, a safe space, so to speak, I guess, where it's less loaded, you know, why did you do that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's why did this person do that? What do you think about that? Mm. And every book you have, like every reader has an individual relationship with books, mm -hmm. but then when you, it's so fun to read them in community as well, whether that's with your kid or your sp spouse or partner or like your book club. And mm -hmm. so you can have a, you can, that the communal aspect of a book too can be, really, uh, really special. And hopefully people in their book clubs are reading your book. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> so. Yeah, I agree. It's having a shared language that comes from books is, is mm. so much fun. I still remember uh, reading Madeline with my kid and, and the story about when Madeline goes to the hospital and then comes back and all her friends are jealous of the attention she got. And they say, Oh, we want our appendix out too. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and we still joke about that whenever someone in our house is sort of, is, is kind of being a little dramatic. We say, Oh, do you want your appendix out too? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Well, with, with, uh, with that, I will let you go. Thank you so much for, spending some time and chatting about books that have meant a lot to you. And thank you for your book because uh, it's, it's been one of my favorite books of this year. So thank oh, you for I'm writing so it. I'm so happy to hear it. Thanks for being interested in Beloved Beasts. And uh, it's just a pleasure to talk about books. So I wish all your listeners happy reading, whatever yeah. they choose. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Well, that was Michelle Nyhouse. Her book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction, is available wherever books are sold, and that paperback is out March 29th. Please do order from your local bookshop if you're interested in that book or any of the books that you've heard about here on this show. But if you would like to order from our shop, we certainly would appreciate that, and you can head over to bookshop.org slash shop slash goldberrybooks. Well, this has been Bibliography, which is produced by Goldberry Studios. Post-production is by the great Logan Green. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for checking out our show. Hope you discovered a great new title to check out as well. Till next time, happy reading.